Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 1, uh, verses 13 to 17, and you can find that on page 939 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Paul writes to the Romans, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's word. Well, it's a privilege to be with you all this weekend. It has been a a real joy uh, to spend yesterday and Friday night uh, to talk about the gospel, talk about the the need for evangelism, uh, the implications of the gospel, what it means to, to live on mission, to live as Christians that bring the gospel to others and uh I came praying that hopefully there'd be some encouragement to to those that come this weekend and for opportunity this morning to be encouraged. But I got to tell you, I'm I'm richly encouraged uh, to to come to a church that loves the gospel, wants to hold the gospel high, wants to take the gospel to reach the neighbors and the nations around them uh, is a rich encouragement to me. So I'm I'm grateful to God for the blessing of of being with you guys this weekend and for the chance this morning to open up. Uh, God's Word in Romans chapter 1. Uh, so you should already be there if uh, you turn there when Brandon read that just a moment ago. If you would, uh, join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the preaching. Lord, we thank you this morning for the opportunity again to, to come before you in the Word of God and to hear your Word. We think of Jesus who speaks and says that his sheep hear his voice. They know your voice. We would pray that you, the good shepherd, would speak to us this morning through your word. That you would incline our minds and our hearts to your word. That you would produce reverence and obedience and joy in you such that we would glorify you by endeavoring to apply the, bo- the gospel to ourselves and to those around us as we bring it to them. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's one of my privileges and joys as a pastor and also as a dad to watch new people uh, get engaged and then get married and then have children as the Lord blesses. And to watch that remarkable change that takes place in uh, the new parents' lives. I mean, ultimately, I mean, there's many things in life that are real game changers, but few rival having children. Uh, for the new couple that have just been married and they're enjoying getting to know each other and living together and building their new life together, and then a little baby comes and everything changes. Right? Suddenly they're up in the middle of the night, they're up early, they're changing diapers. Moms get this instinct out of nowhere that trouble is happening and they turn and like some superhero they prevent a catastrophe from happening and dad is suddenly able to fix all kinds of things and put things together and 
tell all these stories and it's just a remarkable change that happens when parents when people become parents and and I think that that is is one of the, the great changes in life I know it was for myself and my wife and for for many of you as well I think that when we we think about the gospel we have to think of that as the ultimate game changer uh, because when the gospel comes home in your life when that penny drops that you understand the truth of the gospel it, it changes everything it changes how you see it changes how you think it changes what you love it changes what you what you value what makes you laugh what makes you cry how you see people, how you see God, how you see yourself. Everything changes when you become a Christian. And I think sometimes we as Christians forget about the massive change that the Gospel brings. Much like a parent who just is excited to have the baby. We as Christians are just excited to not be going to hell. Let's be honest. But when the Gospel comes home and you really begin to think about the implications to God in terms of worship, to our neighbors, to our fellow church members, the implications are massive. We're talking about a complete and utter game changer. And I think in the passage that Brandon just read in Romans chapter 1, we see Paul speaking about how the Gospel is that game changer. I draw your attention to to verse 13. Of chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul is, is writing to this church in Rome and he is telling them that he wants to come to them. And he's, he's somewhat assuring them that the problem with him not getting there is not their problem and frankly it's not his problem. He wants to be there just as much as they want to see him. But he's been hindered and unable to get there. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. And so Paul more than likely wrote Romans from Corinth, where we get the letters first and second Corinthians, about A.D. 57 or so. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 20. Uh, so he had completed his, his work on the third missionary journey, and, and he, was, he was wanting to travel to Rome, and then he wanted to go on to Spain. And see these Christians that were there. But he had a responsibility. He had to get to Jerusalem to deliver the money that he had collected for the church there. So he had a job to do. Still wanted to go see him though. And we see at the end of the letter of Romans that he, he gives the letter more than likely to Phoebe so that she could bring it to the church of Rome. So Paul wanted to go see him. And he wanted to encourage him. You look at the rest of the verse. The reason why he wanted to come and see him was in order, that's his purpose statement, that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. That's a kind of a curious way to say I want to come and see you, isn't it? But he's speaking of of this visit in terms of a, a gospel harvest. So in Paul's mind, he doesn't even begin with the pleasantries. He gets down to the business and he says, I want to see you because I want to see the gospel at work in and among you. I want to reap a harvest. I want to see people saved, converted, and sanctified. That is growing in godliness through the gospel. He wanted to see them. He wanted to see the gospel bear fruit 
in that area. He believed that the, 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 the church of Rome and the surrounding community was fertile ground for the gospel. And therefore, he wanted to go there and he wanted to preach it. See, the Apostle Paul gives us reasons why he wanted to go there. It tells us a little bit about Paul and how the gospel changed him. But let's be honest, this tells us more about the gospel than it does about Paul. Paul is confident in the gospel that if he would go there, that there would be a harvest. That's a tremendously confident statement in the gospel. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And maybe even just saying the word gospel might bring up all kinds of terms that you might might not be connected to what we're talking about. So when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about specifically the, the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel simply means good news. So it's the good news that God saves sinners. And that's good news because we're all sinners. We've all failed to meet God's standard. God's standard is utter perfection. In, in His standard for, for that does not wane or waver, He doesn't grade on a curve. There's no sympathy votes with God. Because His, his justice and His goodness, His utter perfection, demands that He maintain His honor, His goodness. He has said that the soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin are death. So we're talking about just one minor sin. Whatever minor would mean. One sin earns the, the responsibility of death. We see that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they eat from the tree. The knowledge of good and evil when they shouldn't have. But the good news is that Jesus comes in our place and lives the perfect life and always obeys God. He always loves God perfectly. And he always loves neighbor perfectly. He's the perfect man. He does what you and I should have done, but never did, wouldn't do, and frankly couldn't do. And then He goes to the cross. And there upon the cross, He pays the penalty that our disobedience deserves. There He's hung upon the cross, suffering at the hands of men, but more importantly, suffering at the hands of God, where God is judging Jesus in our place. All of our sin laid on Him. The righteous for the unrighteous. God charges our sin to Christ that He might charge Christ's perfection to us. That's the good news. And Paul knows that that historical fact, that reality that Christ died for sinners like Him, that's the content of the Gospel. And he just wants to get there to to speak that to people because he knows that that's the game changer. The good news is that God saves sinners like us. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're already a Christian but you're not particularly burdened about telling other people about the Gospel. Maybe the Gospel is kind of, the Gospel ink is kind of dried a bit for you. It doesn't have that punch that it has that first day or week or month of conversion. Maybe you've become a bit calloused and cold and indifferent 
to the Gospel and maybe even not looking at people around you as people that need the Gospel and maybe even condescending towards them. Paul reminds us again and again, but even here, that the Gospel is not only the way in, that is into the Kingdom, but it's the way on. It's how we grow as Christians and how we reach out to others with the Gospel content. He reminds that our relationship to the world around us has changed. We have a very real burden to people around us. And perhaps you're a Christian this morning who is convinced and committed to evangelism. And you speak the Gospel to people. A passage like this will remind you and refresh you of the priority of the Gospel and hopefully put some some Gospel wind in your sails. to Say, yeah, this is the right thing. Good reminder. The Gospel works. So all we want to do this morning is see three incentives or three reasons why you must preach the Gospel. Paul says that I wanted to come to you that I might reap some harvest. He's desirous to come. And he gives three reasons why in the following verses he wants to go. The first is that the Gospel brings a debt. The second is that the Gospel saves people. And the third is the Gospel displays God's character. Okay, so we'll just... Or the Gospel glorifies God. That would probably be easier. Look, verse 14 and 15. First, the Gospel brings a debt. Look what he says in verse 14. I am under obligation to both the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Okay. It's a bit of a shocking statement. Paul says, I'm under obligation. Literally, he says, I am in debt. In verse 14. And he says that he's under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians. That's another way of saying all the people in the Gentile world. That's Greeks and barbarians. That's all Gentiles. Then Gentiles means non-Jews, if you're not familiar with the term Gentile in, 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 in Greeks. And then he parallels that with wise and the foolish. And that has to do with their education and their social status. In other words, Paul is saying, I am under obligation to all Gentiles. How about that? This word obligation could be translated properly as debt. It means to, to have a debt. And we see that in the Lord's Prayer in Luke chapter 6. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 rather. That forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But it's also used of a legal debt in Luke chapter 13, verse 4. But it would seem that it is the, the financial aspect is what Paul would have in mind here. There's a couple of ways you can get yourself into debt. I'm sure there's more, but these are two that I would highlight. You borrow money from someone to pay something. So somebody gives you money and then you owe them the money. But there's another way that somebody you could have a debt to somebody. That is that somebody gives you money and your job is to give that money to somebody else. So third party is waiting for second party to deliver first party's money. And you have a job to do. So you're indebted to this person as you are a courier of the the means to bring to the, the third party. And I think that second instance is what he has in mind here. Let's explain it. What he means is that God has given the Gospel to Paul. The Gospel's not just for Paul alone. The Gospel's for Paul to deliver to the barbarians and the Greeks, the wise and the foolish. 
Indeed, all people He's in bondage to. And His job is not done till He gives it to them. This is why He speaks of this burden. Why do I want to come to you in Rome? You'd ask Him. Why, Paul? Why do you want to come? He'd say, why do I want to come? Because there's Gentiles there. That's why. And I want to give the Gospel to Gentiles. Because that's why I'm alive. Now this concept of the Gospel bringing a debt might seem a little bit backwards. Because after all, I just explained what the Gospel is. And in that, I said that the Gospel cancels out our debt. So you might be thinking, how does the Gospel bring a debt when it cancels out a debt? Well, they're both true. The Gospel does cancel out our debt but it also brings a debt. While the Gospel changes our relationship to God, it also changes our relationship to other people. We have peace with God. We go from separation from God to reconciliation with God. Colossians 1, verses 21 and 22. Make that clear. Romans chapter 5, verses 1-11 through show us that we go from being at war with God, enmity with God, to at peace with God. So the debt's canceled. But it also changes our status with others. We, we go from, from being part of the gang to being a missionary to the gang. We go from being in cahoots with fellow sinners to be in bondage with fellow people. See what happens. He pulls us out to put us right back in. That's what the Great Commission is all about. I wonder if you think like that this morning. Do you think about being in bondage to the people around you? Do you feel the burden for, as your vision statement says, the Metro West of Boston? Do you feel that God has given you the gospel and a debt to your neighbors and the community around you? Or, or maybe do you, let's be honest, feel a bit like the new parent that's just happy to have the baby. The gospel is about having the baby, but it's also about the whole change. Everything changes. Sometimes Christians feel disconnected from the world around them and a motive of holiness they and being disgusted by the sin of people around them, they, they separate from the world. And holiness is a good motive, but holiness is never at the expense of evangelism. That doesn't mean we compromise holiness to do evangelism, but it means that we're not pursuing holiness if we're neglecting evangelism. The Gospel calls us to holiness, and it also calls us to mission. And some of us might feel disgust or disdain, especially as the the culture becomes increasingly disconnected from a biblical foundation of what morality would be. And it becomes more in your face. And you become more disgusted. And we begin to look with contempt at the unbelieving world around us. But we have to learn this is not the way of Christ. Look, look over to Matthew chapter 9. Just briefly, I just want to draw your attention to this verse to see your Savior as the way He looked at people. Matthew 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So He's preaching the gospel to, to everybody with all kinds of problems. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That is, he loved them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you see that? He looked at the unbelievers. And he didn't first get repulsed at the level of their sin. And believe me, Christ in his infinite holiness had reason to be repulsed over sin. His first reaction, looking at the multitudes, is not disgust, disdain, or ambivalence, but love, compassion. And Matthew goes on to say they're harassed and helpless. They're lost. They can't do anything else. they got no power, no means, no desire. What do you expect? And so what does Jesus do? He says, pray. Pray for laborers. Pray for laborers. We're the laborers. Pray that the laborers would go into the harvest. And that's what we're called to do. So the gospel changes our status with God, but it also changes our status with the world around us. It removes our debt and it brings a debt to our neighbors. We go from being in partnership to bondage. We're formerly partnership with our colleagues in sin. Now we're in bondage to see them come out of sin through the gospel. Let's look second at the gospel and it saves people. Another reason, back to Romans 1. The gospel saves people. This is why he wanted to preach, not just because he was in bondage, but actually because the gospel works. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's a remarkable statement about the the power of the gospel. It's an exclusive statement. The gospel is the only means by which anybody can be saved. The gospel, one gospel, is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. There's not many Gospels. There's one Gospel. And it's the only way that any of us can be made right with God. So we should cease with any nonsense of of, of doing our best and hoping our best is going to outweigh our worst and we can do better. It's not going to work. The Bible's clear. There's one Gospel. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ that saves So it's exclusive. It says for any who believe, that is you have to believe, those who believe, literally the believing ones, those who believe. The gospel comes to us in facts and it appeals to us to to believe it and to lean upon it and to trust the truth. It says if you, you lean on something, can it bear your weight? Is it true? Yes, the gospel can bear the freight of your greatest need. It can, can take away your sin and it is true. It is sufficient. Second, not only is it exclusive, but it's also sufficient. That is, it works. What he says, it is the power of God for salvation. It saves people. This is what it does. It's the gospel that saves And this is why you don't see the Apostle Paul or any of the apostles engaging in any of these shenanigans of trying to manipulate people to become Christians. 
And when you do see that in popular culture, you know that people have drifted away from the, the shore of the Gospel. Look over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says as much. Verse 1, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We don't get discouraged. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. We're not going to, we're not going to manipulate, be pragmatic, calculating, do anything that we think is going to try to manipulate someone to the end result. The ends don't justify the means. The means, according to Paul, bring about the ends and the means of the gospel. Look what he says. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So he's speaking the truth to them. Verse 3, and if our gospel is veiled, it's only veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is the image of God. So there's satanic involvement in the blindness. In, a, in, a, in accordance with the hardness of the heart and satanic blindment, that's why they're not seeing. And then in verse 5, he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For, this is why, this is purpose, why do I declare this? For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's glorious. He's saying the God who, who put the sun in the sky and said, let there be light, is the one who supernaturally turns the light on in the soul of man, and He does that through the Gospel. So if God can do that, and it's still working, evidenced by the sun shining in here today, He can still put the light on in people's souls, and He does it through the Gospel. Therefore, we preach it. That's what Paul's saying. It's sufficient. One of the reasons we lag behind in evangelism is we forget the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Now that could be because of a lot of reasons, but one of them is we might not have seen conversions in a while. We might get discouraged. But listen to Paul. This is what happens. Paul knew this and he experienced it personally. Let me just, for the sake of time, just review these instead of turning there. But you remember Paul's conversion story, right? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being abused and stoned for his faith in Christ. And then at the end of Acts 7 and beginning of Acts chapter 8, they lay their coats, the, the people that are killing Stephen, they lay their coats at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul goes about, it says, ravaging the church. He got orders from the leaders to go up to Damascus to drag more Christians out of their home and, and to kill them and arrest them. This guy had martyr's blood under his fingernails, intent on doing more harm, absolutely attempting to snuff out the gospel from every corner of the earth. He was marching up to Damascus to inflict more of his wrath to ravage the church. And as he was on his way, the Lord Jesus Christ met him. Called him by name, struck him blind, put him on his face, and claimed him as his own. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. How about that? Saul was cursing God through Christ. And he comes out of there praising God through Christ. You think Paul forgot the gospel? His very existence depended on the gospel. And then it happened wherever he went preaching. You think of Colossians chapter 1. He's writing to them. He hasn't even seen them yet, but he knows Epaphras and he knows what's happened there as Paul's in prison. And he talks about the gospel bearing fruit in Colossae as it is everywhere. The gospel bears fruit. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is so confident in their, in, in the gospel as he says that it came to Thessalonica even amid all types of confusion on the ground of that, that early church plant. But they heard the word of God. They received it not as the word from men, but as the word of God. And they turned to God from idols to serve the living God. What a dramatic change. The gospel disrupts industry in Acts chapter 19. So much so that Some of the leaders say that the apostles are turning the world upside down with their doctrine. The gospel works. But Paul says something kind of surprising back in chapter 1. Notice what he says. He prefaces that with verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's a bit surprising, isn't it? I mean, I've been talking about the gospel in such glorious terms. It is a bit surprising that Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of it, isn't it? Could you imagine if... We just meet and we're talking and you say, tell me about your family. And the first thing I say is, now, I want to tell you about my wife, but first let me just tell you, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of her. <laughs> now, you're going you're gonna to look and say, all right, okay, all right. <laughs> okay, that's good. And then you're going to speak, I'm going to speak in glowing terms. And you're going to walk away and you're going to say to whoever you talk to next, that was an odd conversation. <laughs> You're going to say, I think there's something about his wife he's not telling me. <laughs> right? We don't know. It's a strange thing to say. It assumes there's something wrong. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So why does he say that? It's because the gospel was as unfashionable in first century Rome as it is in 21st century New England. When he opens his mouth, and talks about the gospel. People don't like it. It's pride smashing. It's, it, it calls for the repudiation of the self. The humbling of self. The confession of sin. The confession of personal failures. The, the confession that you can't do it on your own. That's humbling. People don't want to hear it. After all, we don't admit our weakness. The gospel cannot be received unless one does admit their weakness and their brokenness before God. So why would we be tempted to be ashamed of it? Well, there's nothing wrong with the gospel. We know that. But there's something wrong with people. We know that. And perhaps increasingly we're seeing there's a little bit something wrong with us. Because we have something great 
but we're ashamed of it. We fear man and we love ourselves. As I try to deconstruct my own gospel apathy, I have to conclude that it comes down to being afraid of people and loving myself. I want approval. I want comfort. I don't want, I don't want a confrontational conversation. I want honor. I want you to think well of me. If I tell you who I really am and what the gospel demands for you, then you're not going to think well of me. It could sacrifice all kinds of things. Relationships, job opportunities, esteem from people. There's all kinds of issues that the gospel brings. We fear man and we love ourselves. Even worse, we don't love them well, even as we fear them. The bottom line is we don't love them. We love ourselves. That's why we fear people. Because if we truly loved people, then we would see their true need and we want to meet their true need. But we really don't love them, do we? We'd be content to let them pass on to hell with their good opinions of us. How convicting. I, I, I think about that and I think, what is wrong with me? What, what is wrong with us? We forget the gospel. And we forget how to love. And remember, gospel amnesia, forgetting the gospel, always leads to evangelistic apathy. When you forget it, you don't want to talk about it. You forget you're a sinner, you forget others are sinners. When you forget you've been shown mercy, you forget that God shows mercy. When you forget the gospel saves, you'll be lethargic speaking of the gospel to others. Look, we can't say the gospel doesn't work if we don't work. The gospel actually saves us from ourselves and orientates us towards others. As one person said, the greatest impediment to evangelism is not opening our mouths. So the gospel is exclusive and sufficient means of salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. And we need to tell people, those whom we're in bondage to. Third, The gospel displays God's character or his glory. Either one will work. It says, for in it that is in the gospel, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What he's saying here is that the gospel displays God's righteousness in the lives of those who have come to faith. He's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 6, where it says the righteous shall live by faith or the righteous by faith shall live. An indication is those who believe the truth demonstrate God's righteousness in their lives. And you say, well, how is, how is that a motive for the gospel? Well, let's, let's think about how it, how it displays the righteousness first. Look over in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 26. For me, as not a Christian and growing up wrestling with how this all fits together. You know, I was in the process of of investigating the Bible, trying to figure things out. I remember asking uh, the priest that I would go to on the military base repeatedly and then in the community that we lived with, and I kept asking this question. I kept saying, I have this burden of sin and problem. How do I deal with it? And he said, go to confession. Go to Mass. Do Do the things that you need to do. Work harder. Say the prayers. And I did it. I listened to him. But I felt worse. It weighed on me. It made me more acutely aware of my sin. So I went and then I I said, I really got to be sure this is going to work. 
how can God forgive me? How does this work out? And he said, he loves me. He said, he loves you. And I said, well, how can a God who is also just show his love to me? Meaning, does he stop being just in order to show the love? Does he compromise his love, his justice, so that he can demonstrate his love? Is God some type of like schizophrenic God where he can set aside this attribute and emphasize this attribute so long as I get to heaven? I couldn't get an answer to that question. It plagued me. Because I'm not going to worship a God that isn't worthy of worship. And look at Romans chapter 3, verse 26. Speaking of the gospel... In it, through the gospel, shows his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, in Paul's thinking, in the biblical mind, they're not in conflict. They get resolved at the cross. God would be just in forgiving me. He maintains his justice. And the justifier, that is, he forgives my sin. He declares me righteous. Do you see how they both happen at the same time? You say, well, how does that happen? Because on the cross, Jesus suffered for our sin. So God exercised His justice on Jesus, fully satisfying it. So that He could fully satisfy and demonstrate His love to us. So He's just to forgive us. Just as He was just to punish Christ and show mercy. Isn't that remarkable? So what happens in Paul's mind is when people believe the gospel, they are walking around as walking billboards of the righteousness of God displayed in the unrighteous sinner. We get his righteousness. And we're walking around declaring our God is glorious. Look what he's done. The gospel gives glory to God in a unique and supreme way because it harmonizes all of God's attributes He's loving, mercy, mercy, merciful, gracious, loving, holy, righteous, omnipotent, omniscient, omniscient. All of these, all at the same time on the cross when He forgives us our sin. That's how you display the glory of God. So Paul, if you wrap it all together, he's saying, I want to come and I want to preach there. Because I want to see God glorified through the gospel being preached and received. More converts. I want to come and I want to preach there because the gospel actually saves people. It works. I want to come and I want to actually preach there because I am in debt to everybody with a pulse, particularly the Gentiles, that they would hear the gospel. The gospel is the ultimate game changer. It changed this guy, Paul. It changed me. I would change many of you. What we have to remember is the scope of that change. And perhaps we overlook the evangelism aspect, the mission aspect. This is a good occasion for us to be reminded from the Word of God, this is the emphasis throughout the New Testament, that our job is to make and train disciples with the Gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you today and even thinking about the task of evangelism feel inadequate in ourselves. 
even the Apostle would say the same thing. But we're thankful that our adequacy doesn't come from ourselves, but from you. Thank you that it's not ultimately our job to bring about the conversion of those around us. It is you that brings about new life, just as you cause the light to shine out of darkness. You bring life to men and women and children. We are just the table waiters bringing the food from the chef to the table. We're delivering. May we be faithful. May this church, may Westgate Church, be a faithful gospel church, seeing themselves as debtors to the community around them. And even as they've been so strategically spread through 28 towns, may the mission expand into those communities through the members of this congregation. And may there be a great harvest, a gospel harvest of souls where many come to faith in Christ and turn to God from idols to serve you, the living God, and wait for Christ to return from heaven. Oh Lord, would you do that and glorify your name and give gospel workers great joy in seeing it before their, before their eyes in their own lifetime. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.